Welcome to Tales of History and Imagination. Eccentric Tales from History by Simone Whitlock. On 17th June 1943, Nancy arrived back in England. German U-boats had taken down a lot of Allied ships of late, so the escapees had to wait until there was cause to send an entire convoy back to Britain. This meant a stay of a few months in Gibraltar. Nancy returned to find a vastly different London to the city she'd left in the 1930s. The Luftwaffe had bombed the living hell out of the place. For a time, Nancy tried to return to Civvy Street. She rented an apartment in Piccadilly and made a home for herself there. She bought nice furniture and furnishings. Soon, she presumed, Henri would join her there, but days ran into weeks with no sign or word of a husband. Knowing their phones were likely tapped, Nancy determined she would not call but would wait it out. Growing restless in civilian life, and probably pining a little for Henri, she looked for a way to get back into France. Various military organisations were not keen to sign her up, but finally, the Special Operations Executive took her in. They had a very important role in mind for Madame Fiocca. When the Nazis defeated the French, Tens of thousands of men went bush, taking to the forests. These bands of merry men were known collectively as Le Marquis, the men known singularly as the Maquisades. They were, by and large, untrained and underfunded, but were of great potential value to the war effort if only someone could train them, organise them and arm them. Once organised, these partisans could wreck all kinds of havoc. Nancy was to be sent in as one-third of a team, codenamed Freelance. One of a number of similar teams, they would organise the Mackie. Freelance were trained up for the job in Scotland, and then parachuted into France on 29th of April, 1944. Now, I won't go on a day-by-day breakdown of Nancy's time with the Mackies of Laverne. I'm still trying to keep this roughly to a half-hour episode. But there are a handful of details I need to cover. There were 7,000 men in the forest, living nomadically in temporary camps. They slept under the trees and mostly lived off the land. They were already somewhat active, carrying out the occasional ambush or sabotage. The game, however, for the Allies was to get the men prepared for a big operation on D-Day. As the Normandy landing neared, Airdrops of equipment ramped up. Even at this stage, the missions could get ropey. One day, London sent a message to Nancy to pick up a weapons instructor, codenamed Anselm. He was in a safe house in Montlucon with a former cook named Madame Renard. London presumed she would just know the location of the safe house and the password when she got there. The partisan who knew the house and password had, unbeknownst to London, disappeared a while back. What's more, Montlucan was by then swarming with Nazis, who tended to pounce on any strangers asking questions. 
This mission was central to their plan, but it was also like looking for a needle in a haystack. Now this tale, it turned out, ended with no great drama. Nancy evaded Nazi scrutiny, and eventually deducted the location of the safe house. Madame Renard played dumb to Nancy's questions when she answered the door, till Nancy complimented her on the aroma of a cake Madame Renard had in the oven. A reputation as the former cook of the ambassador had well preceded her. While Renard presumed no Nazi would know this, so she let Nancy in. Anselm was hiding in a cupboard, pistol at the ready, if a visitor had been from the Gestapo. Just one broken link in the chain could ramp up the level of danger, potentially bringing the whole house of cards down on him. On 5th of June 1944, a cryptic message came through via a BBC radio broadcast. The crocodile is thirsty. I hope to see you again, darling. Twice at the Pont de Avignon. You may now shake the trees and gather the pears. D-Day was coming. And La Marquise moved into position. Armed with guns and several tons of explosives, they descended upon 1,200 designated targets in the dead of night. Factories, telephone lines, railways, bridges, roads were all blown to smithereens. As the Allies landed en masse at Normandy, Le Marquis did all they could to stop the Axis from deploying reinforcements from the south of the country. Now, of course, the Nazis weren't just going to let them blow up all the transport and communication lines. And fierce fighting broke out. Nazis being Nazis, when they couldn't strike back at partisans, they took their anger out on the local population. Many houses were burnt down. Many civilians were lynched in the streets. Villagers were gathered en masse and executed by firing squad. Four days after the Marquis' operation, the Nazis refocused and sent an army of 7,000 troops, artillery and tanks into the forest to crush a camp of 3,000 Marquis embedded at Montmouchet. A pitched battle erupted between the Nazis and the partisans. Nancy was tied up fighting her own Nazis too far away to help but still close enough to hear the carnage going on for days. The Marquis and the other camp, led by a man named Gaspard, more than held their own. In the meantime, thousands of French civilians flooded into Nancy's camp, asking to join the resistance. They were suddenly flat out arming these newcomers and preparing them to take on the Nazis at Gaspard's Hill. Several days into the battle, however, with casualties well in excess of partisan losses, the Nazis withdrew. From here on in, the weapons drops increased as the fight back took a pace. One day, a fatigued Nancy narrowly avoided being shot to pieces by a German plane while she was picking up a supply drop. She dodged the plane's strafing runs a couple of times by emergency braking, causing the plane to misjudge her trajectory. She abandoned the car at just the right moment. One final strafing run pierced the gas tank and the car went off like a Roman candle. With just one package in hand, a special personal order of makeup and tea, she ran off into the forest.
Another day, after several days of running on just two hours sleep a night, she narrowly avoided being blown to bits by German artillery. Worried she'd fall asleep at the wheel, Nancy took to bed in a nearby abandoned farmhouse. A comrade burst in, warning the Nazis were coming. They relocated to the tree line, just in time to see the farmhouse demolished. There are a couple of other tales I need to cover in the Nancy Wake story. First, there was that bike ride. In the days following the D-Day operation, the Mackies withdrew to safer ground. They were fighting a guerrilla war, after all. As they relocated, Nancy's radio operator, Denden, by all tellings a fascinating character, as a wonderfully camp, openly gay man at that time, he'd been injured in battle, receiving a leg wound. He'd recover from the injury and did escape the Nazi grasp. But at the time, he worried he'd be captured, along with his radio. So he destroyed his radio and codes. It was imperative to get a replacement as soon as possible. Without contact with London, they were flying blind. The following day, Nancy rode 20 miles over the mountain to a pub where she hoped to make contact with another cell. She was greeted outside the pub by the publican. A communist was inside. He planned to shoot her. Nancy rushed into the pub, sat down across the table from the communist, and slammed her pistol down on the table. I hear you're gonna shoot me. Well, you'd better be quick on the draw. Nancy ordered a drink, all the while eyeballing the communist. She discovered the cell had left town. There were now Nazis all over the place. The next closest spare radio was 200 kilometers down the road in Chateau. Given the distance and sudden influx of Nazis, Nancy decided her best hope was to get all dolled up, leave the gun behind, do her best to pass for a local out on a ride to pick up the groceries. She left for Chateau in twilight. 60 kilometers in through hilly country roads, Madame Fioca was exhausted, but she pushed on. As she reached some town or other on the way, she'd stop for a drink and do her best to glean whatever information she could about Nazi movements in the area. Then she'd jump back on her bike and continue. She arrived at the town of Borgia to find it practically boarded up. A troop of Nazis had massacred a group of locals earlier in the day, and everybody was keeping their heads down. As she inconspicuously passed through, a group of Nazis were packing up to leave for the next town. The town of Isudon was safer, and Nancy had a chance to have a drink and clean herself up a little. On her journey, she did pass several troops of Nazis. Some waved as she went by, others catcalled after her. So far, no one bothered to ask her for identification papers. Within 80 kilometers of Chartreux, the road was too congested with German trucks, so Nancy took a detour, and within a day and a half she reached her destination. When she finally found the radio operator, he obstinately refused to help her. She didn't have the password. Prior to her run-in with the radio operator, Nancy had come across a Makassad from another camp who was there to contact another radio operator in the town. Could he help her, perhaps? She was told not. The contact had legged it and there were Gestapo officers laying in wait in his apartment for whoever showed up. 
There was yet another cell camping out in the forest on the other side of town, and they had a spare radio. The ride back was complete agony. Every muscle in her body ached. By now, Nancy had worn away the skin on her thighs. Kilometre after kilometre, she pushed on, not daring to stop as she knew she'd never get going again. Three days after she'd left, Nancy had returned, exhausted and in need of medical attention, having covered 400 kilometres. For context, the cyclists on the Tour de France cover a little over 3,300 kilometres in 23 days. So she kept up one hell of a pace for an amateur unaccustomed to riding on an old-fashioned bike. Now there are many other tales, many stories of gunfights with Nazis. One tale from July 1944, when the Marquis decided the Nazis needed a good shake-up. So Nancy and a group of other Macassards drove up to their makeshift headquarters at the Montlucon Town Hall at midday. The building was unguarded outside, so they had no trouble bursting through the doors, tossing hand grenades in, and then running off. This attack maimed or killed 38 men, mostly officers. There's also the story of the time Nancy killed a man with her bare hands. She was on a mission to take out an armory at Mont Moucher. Two guards would pace the perimeter in opposite directions, meet in the middle and then turn around. Once they'd walked a significant distance away from one another, the plan was to jump the guards and incapacitate them. Nancy and her comrades mistimed the run, however, one guard stabbing Nancy in the arm with his bayonet, before Nancy took him down with a karate chop to the neck. The chop allegedly broke his neck, a doctor of the camp patched her up afterwards. Then there was the tale of an aggrieved Macassad who tried to have Nancy killed. So for some time she had a crew of Spanish Macassad bodyguards with her, wherever she went. Then there was another tale of Mackie's behaving atrociously. When Madame Fioca discovered one day in one of the camps, a couple of women were being held captive. One, a girl from a village, was being pimped out to the men, and the other was a Nazi collaborator. Now one should never play both sides had around Nazis. They are always the worst people in any room. But it is disturbing to think of the cell of Mackies, who kept a woman, or two women, sex slaves. Nancy freed the villager, but she begged Nancy to let her stay on as her assistant, which she assented to. The other lady was far more problematic. If they let her go, she would bring the Nazis back to the camp. On the other hand, she couldn't be left with a cell of men who had kept sex slaves. Feeling she had no other choice, Nancy allowed her to get dressed up in a clean dress, then executed her with her sidearm. There were other tales, though, that were far more Acadian. Like the night the Partisans held a grand celebration in the forest to celebrate the beginning of the end for the Nazis, or another feast in honour of her 32nd birthday. Now we probably all know the broad strokes of how this tale ends, right? On August 25th, 1944, Paris was liberated 
and town after town was quickly freed from the Nazi yoke. The Nazis hightailed it back to Germany to protect their motherland, as the noose closed in on them. The Eastern Front had very much turned the way of the Allies as well, although at an absolutely staggering loss of lives. By late 1943, the USSR had recovered half of their land. Throughout 1944, they pushed on and on, until they were in Germany. The war in Europe effectively ended in a Berlin bunker, 30th of April, 1945. The Russian Red Army had the city besieged. An ailing Hitler had just married his mistress, Eva Braun, on the night of the 28th, probably thinking how Mussolini was hung from a lamppost and shot. Braun bit down on a cyanide pill, and Hitler unholstered his gun. For decades, rumours would circulate around their charred remains, and speculations that Hitlers faked their own death to live out the rest of their lives under the surname Wolf somewhere in Argentina. But those two monsters are certainly not the lovers we're interested in. The question remained, what became of Henri? Soon after liberation, Madame Fiocca got the awful news. As Nancy arrived in Vichy, she came across a woman she knew from Marseille. This lady was now working the reception desk at a hotel. The two women spoke and the receptionist asked her what the future held for Madame Fiocca. Nancy answered she was going back to Marseille and to Henri. The receptionist exclaimed, Oh no, Nancy, don't you know? He's dead. The receptionist was unable to provide any further details. It was a long, arduous journey back to Marseille. Some roads were too strewn by the wreckage of Nazi tanks. Bridges were blown to pieces but she eventually found a path through. Once there, the story came to her in bits and pieces. Not long after Nancy's escape, in March 1943, Pat O'Leary was arrested by the Gestapo. In May, he stumbled across some random piece of information that simply had to be passed to the resistance. He shared this information with a fellow prisoner who was due to be released and asked him to pass it on to Henri. The whole thing appears to have been a ruse. The prisoner was a Nazi spy, and it's not clear if the information was fake also. Henri was arrested and brutally tortured. To compound matters, the Gestapo approached Henri's parents to say he was being tortured because he refused to divulge Nancy's location. If somebody gave her up, Henri would be released. Now it is unlikely he would ever have been released and Nancy was safely in Gibraltar by then. The Fiocas blamed Nancy for Henri's death. Henri's torture continued until October 1943, when he was finally lined up against a wall and shot. Heartbroken and with nothing to stay for, the widow of Fiocca set off for London. Well, she did eventually return to Paris, spending time working there for the British Air Ministry in the city before returning briefly to Australia in 1949. Nancy ran for a seat in Parliament under a Conservative ticket. Would have preferred she was a Labour supporter, but there you go. After a loss in 1949, and subsequently in the 1951 election, she returned to Britain. 
Back in London, a 1956 newspaper article on Nancy caught the attention of a former flight lieutenant she had met in Paris, a man named John Forward. John served in the war, but having been shot down in 1942, spent most of that time in a German prisoner of war camp. One day, he looked Nancy up and dropped by her flat. The two headed off, got married, and would remain married for 40 years, until John's passing in 1997. In 1959, the couple moved back to Australia and had two kids. Nancy Wake passed 7th August 2011, aged 98, having lived several lifetimes worth of adventures. One wonders what Auntie Hinamoa would have made of her investment. Thank you for listening. This has been Tales of History and Imagination. All episodes written and narrated by me, Simone Whitlow. All music, yours truly. Visit the show at historyandimagination.com. You can follow me on social media, links in the show notes get access to exclusive bonus content via my Patreon, also in the notes. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a like on your podcatcher of choice and share the episode as word of mouth is the best way to help shows like this grow. See you back in two weeks' time for more tales of history and imagination.